three higher ed authors, 100 plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salucio back with you again. These uh, intros are going to get uh, sound really all the same, not just because I do the intro the same every single time, but because I'm going to thank you for supporting our new book, Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, which just came out over Thanksgiving. And um, the support from the EdUp community and higher education community at large has been absolutely incredible. Uh, we have pictures all over the internet of people holding up the book and reading it and making notes on it. And uh, it's just a, an honor to have the support. And so I thank you and we'll continue to do so. Um, I, I do want to say that I hope you are uh, uh, re resolving yourselves if your resolutions for New Year's, if you are sticking with them. I don't personally do resolutions because I like to start off the year with great success and not failure or failing my New Year's resolutions right away. Um, I usually say I'm going to work out and then the first or second day I'm, I'm eating instead of working out. So I said, I'm going to stop doing that. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I, was, I hope you're healthy. I hope you're ready uh, and willing and prepared for a, what I think is going to be an awesome 2023 for higher education. I think we're going to have a little bit of a comeback, mark my words, not only in redefining the value of a degree, because I think that is going to, uh, there's a little elasticity in that. I think we're going to start to realize that we do like to be educated. Um, but because we're going to have one heck of a year of technological disruption, ChatGPT, who I interviewed, by the way, I interviewed, if you don't know, a couple episodes ago, I interviewed ChatGPT, I asked it questions, I put it into a text-to-voice application and literally had it respond to my questions. Um, boy, oh boy, is that changing the landscape right now. People are, I just I saw a Today Show, um, I'm doing a monologue here, but I, I saw a Today Show uh a video where this guy writes a children's book uh, on chat GPT. So anyway, get ready for disruption. Uh, we're not going to be entering the golden age of ed tech, uh, but redefining the value of higher ed for our students in multiple ways. Somebody that's going to help me do that, ladies and gentlemen, is Douglas Carlson. He's head of partnerships and strategy and for North America at Lead Square. Douglas, I'm shortening your title every single episode. How are you? I am doing great, and I, uh, unlike you, I'm actually doing pretty well on my New Year's resolutions that I've committed to. Oh, so I'll give you a little hard time on that one. <laughs> I like your style, dude. Um, good for you, Douglas. Um, and I'm not going to take that as a slight, uh, even though maybe you meant it that way. But that's why you're here. That's why you're here because. Uh, but I, I I'll tell you this: this aggression will not stand, man. So, you know, we've got to we, we got to see how it goes the rest of the episode. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're going to talk uh, education. We're going to talk online education, uh, higher education today. And we're going to do that with this gentleman right here. And when I say he's ready to go, look at the look on his face for now. He's ready. He's Tom Monahan. He's president of DeVry University. Tom, how are you? I'm doing great. Happy New, Happy New Year, whatever resolution strategy you have adopted. Oh, well done. Well done. And what's your resolution strategy, my friend? You know, I... I try to do one or two simple daily habits that I'll incorporate and uh, con consistent with my meditation practice, my uh, my goal this year is to set an intention for each day and reconcile whether I made any headway on it or not. Mm, do any of those intentions 
involve your leadership at DeVry University? Are they, are they personal goals, professional goals? You know, it, it, every day is a choose your own adventure, right? Take a look at the calendar, see what's coming and set, d decide how I want to approach the day ahead of me. I love it. So let's talk about DeVry University. Let's assume, which if you worked in higher education for any length of time, you've heard of DeVry University, but let's assume somebody has not heard of DeVry University. Give us your once over. What is DeVry? Where are you? What do you do? How do you do it? Who do you serve? The whole bit. Sure. You know, in, in real simple terms, uh, uh, and I'm new to higher education myself, so this is a good reminder for me that uh, I, I'm probably the rookie on this on this uh, on this conversation. Um, look, DeVry serves a very specific need in U.S. higher education, uh, and that is we connect uh, ambitious but often non-traditional learners to career pathways in the technology economy. We want to create, uh, give people entry points uh, to thrive in uh, careers and in a workplace which is shaped and reshaped by continuous technological change. So our programming uh, helps people accomplish important career goals against the backdrop of a rapidly digitizing economy. Serve probably just over 27,000 students. Uh, I've learned the uh, uh, I've learned the nomenclature of higher education where our, I guess our students are considered non-traditional. Uh, by that, uh, I think the sector means that they are not all 18-year-olds who have just finished high school. There are people who are often working as they go through this. There are people with other responsibilities. There are people uh, having impact in their communities, workplaces, places of worship, et cetera. And at the same time, they want to take a big step forward in their careers. Uh, why, why that is non-traditional, I'm not quite sure, because it is the majority learner in the United States. <laughs> but um, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess uh, we're, we're battling perception, not reality in that statement. I do that every day, battle perception and reality. I, I will, um, I, working learners is a term that is growing in popularity to describe the adult working student who is more the majority, non, you know, non-traditional being the new traditional. So the working learner is, is who you've described. It is a, it, it is a interesting perspective that you have coming from outside higher education in, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who come from the outside, get into higher ed and you see how heavily regulated it is and maybe not expected. Is this how you feel? Hey, well, I just want to go home. That's it. I don't understand the rules here. I want to go home. Or t tell me how you get your arms and your legs around all this, all these regs, let's say tax accounting and, you know, maybe a couple other industries and higher ed are just very heavily regulated. Yeah, I, you know, look, um, by by any measure, higher ed is heavily regulated, but so too are financial services, healthcare, pharma. I mean, give or take half the U.S. economy would considered would be considered highly regulated uh, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so I don't, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time spend a lot of time making sure we're incredibly compliant, uh, and I spend a lot of time making sure that we, in terms of uh, you know, look, in, in big, simple terms, no one should ever expect more of our organization than we expect of ourselves, period. So, uh, and that's true within a regulated industry. That's true outside a regulated industry. It's, it's important to make sure that we, um, we don't see regulations a, as, uh, 
as only a thing we must grudgingly comply with, but rather as things that point us to what we ought to aspire to as an entity. So I, I don't worry too much about that. You know, the, the more interesting thing for me in higher ed has been um, how radically different the language of educators is from all other industries. Um, uh, and I'll give I'll give you one um, very specific example. I, I'd I'd run you know reasonably sized companies that be considered sort of uh, either mid cap or small large cap companies uh, publicly held. I'd never heard anyone in business refer to themselves as an employer. Just that mm-hmm. that's a word that exists only in higher ed. It exists right. only in the education establishment. You don't get on a plane, right? You don't get on a plane and sit next to someone and say, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Chicago. You're going to Chicago. Why, why are you going to Chicago? I'm going there for work. What do you do? No one ever answers that question. I'm an employer. Um, and so the, the surprise to me about higher ed has not been the regulatory infrastructure. Again, half the U.S. economy operates under a reasonably significant in, uh, regulatory infrastructure. It has been how different the language is particularly as we think about getting students ready to thrive in the workplace. Hmm. That's pretty incredible insight. Douglas, uh, over to you. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm actually curious from your personal journey. You know, I know you're C, uh, you know, very successfully CEO of CEB. You come from a, a, a strong kind of Deloitte uh, background. What made you interested in leading DeVry, getting into the educational space? You know, the story goes back to um, uh during the Obama administration, the Obama administration put together a, a lot of great work on creating pathways into, uh, under their TechR initiative, uh, creating pathways into the technology economy. And we, we got involved in that because we had built, at the time, uh, one of our businesses was, a, was a, uh, kind of a, it was an appendage to people's applicant tracking systems that provide artificial intelligence to how you actually thought about constructing job descriptions and where you could hire from. Great, great entity called Talent Neuron. Um, But that gave us a lot of data about the U.S. labor force uh, by skill, by geography, by demand and supply, et cetera. And and I got really interested in the fact that um, (laughs) there's been a lot of energy devoted to supply chain issues over the past three years. You watch, you know, we all have images of, you know, container ships backing up at the port of LA, et cetera. Um, but the most broken supply chain on God's green earth is the uh, labor supply chain in the U.S. for uh, technology jobs. Uh, uh, by by any possible imagination, the supply side and demand side don't talk, they don't speak the same language. And there's a chronic mismatch between uh, uh, what what students learn, how they're skilled up, and uh, what uh, w- what corporate partners need at a very specific level by geo, by capability level. So doing that, we did that work pro bono. We just opened up our databases. We put some great analysts against it to help the help the administration think through what the real dimensions of the uh, technology. Uh, capability gap in the economy was. Um, and it's huge. And it's, it got me thinking a little bit, because like anyone of my generation um, who's grown up in in either pure technology fields or technology-enabled fields, we've solved those problems by going offshore. And that's it, been great. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I look at some of my the colleagues whom I've built 
uh, capability centers with around the world. And they're among the most exceptional professionals I've ever worked with. But ultimately, uh, it's not to our credit that that's the button every leader hits when they need uh, technology skills at scale. Um, and so I started thinking about this problem probably a decade ago. Um, did And as DeVry got stood up as an independent institution again, um, it really is a scale platform for uh, making sure that at least we're doing our small part to rightly structure the supply chain for technology roles inside American companies. Amazing. And maybe to dig in with an example. So obviously when you said cybersecurity, it's, it's a very large space, you know, there's lots of jobs in it, but it seems to be one of the cited examples of, wow, we just, we, we don't have enough people to fill this space. Yep. And so I'm really curious, is that because the, uh, the supply and demand mismatch is happening where there's so many more jobs now available mm -hmm. and we just don't have people interested in the field? Or is it we are actually educating people in the field, but it's just not catching up in a meaningful way? Or is it a totally different dynamic that I'm not even mentioning? Yeah, I get, you know, I get my, I get my Russian authors confused. Uh, but <laughs> either, either Tolstoy or Dostoevsky said, you know, um, every happy family is the same. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I yeah. forget which one it is, but every possible problem plagues cybersecurity up and down the talent supply chain. Um, and just a few examples, if you look at it, I think you hit on one issue, which is, um, uh, you know, cybersecurity, uh, demand has boomed. You know, I don't know how many state sponsored, uh, cyber activists there are globally, but I bet the numbers closing in on a million people who get paid by their government to cause trouble. Um, and so there's nearly infinite demand for protection against a rapidly escalating uh, set of threat factors. So that, uh, and that's just a shock to the system. Um, uh, second, it, 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 it sounds arcane when you try to explain it to someone who's going back to school, which is, um, you know, they, they might show up on your doorstep and say, hey, I think I want a career in business. And we say, no, you should be in cybersecurity. That's a big 180. That's an incredible level of specificity. And it sounds dark and it sounds really complex. And, uh, and I, I did a series of conversations with some of our most prominent alumni, and they said a huge portion of what they spend their time doing is demystifying technology careers for people because people are- they imagine themselves in a basement yeah. with like eight yeah. monitors with the lights exactly. turned out, exactly. looking at the matrix- yeah, exactly. And that, you know, I, they, they just, they, they just, people get really spooked by that. And so there's a work we have to do at the front end to get people interested in that as a career. And there's all sorts of stuff we need to do along the, um, along the continuum to get someone in the front door. Uh, obviously, uh, experience-based pedagogy matters a lot, right? There's, uh, you know, the, the best way to understand threat scenarios is to play around with threat scenarios. <laughs> and see things like that. So you need to rethink curriculum. There's also a um, a frequency of, um, uh, you know, cybersecurity, if you just look at all the different categories of threat vectors and the pulse rate at which both the defensive technology improves and the pulse rate at which the threat vectors expand are so fast. So you actually have to have a very agile curriculum development op opportunity. So, um, you know, it, it's a great example. The one great thing about cyber, uh, we we did we've been doing a lot of work to say, look, 
there is simply no way um, uh, we can rely on traditional pools of talent and traditional uh, modes of entry into the labor force uh, to solve this problem. I think give or take the rough numbers say we'll create about 40,000 cybersecurity credentials this year in the economy. And that's against a gap of hundreds of thousands. <laughs> and so, you know, if you just simply look and say how many decades, assuming no one ever retires or leaves cybersecurity, how many decades will it take our current infrastructure to deliver the cyber talent we need? Uh, the sh short answer is never. Um, and and the thing about cyber also that sort of catches your attention is there's no other worthwhile societal goal that can be achieved without adequate protection of our systems and, and data. A simple example, let's imagine infrastructure. Um, if we're going to pour billions and billions and trillions of dollars in infrastructure, you'd hope it'd be smart infrastructure. There's nothing more terrifying than a whole bunch of smart infrastructure that is inadequately protected. Creates you know, huge risk. Climate tech. You're not going to get anywhere with climate tech unless you have a robust security infrastructure. So cyber is this sort of little golden thread that goes through a whole bunch of other important activities in the economy. So, yeah, there's but but no one thinks about it as a supply chain. No one thinks about it as a talent supply chain for one of the most critical elements of our society. Yeah. So you look like you're cooking still go. Yeah, well, and, and I'm I'm really curious also because it. it I think you, you explained it very well, like the different threat vectors and kind of both sides of it evolving so quickly. How do you find the talent to teach that in such a rapidly changing environment? Like that seems to be like it'd be a huge challenge. Yeah, I think there's probably two, three answers to that question. One is um, uh, at, at a simplistic level, one really important thing to do is bring practitioners into the classroom. Uh, one of the great things about cyber, and this is just a shout out to uh, the CISOs I know and the incredible professionals that I, I've worked with uh, in that space, both at DeVry and beyond, is uh, more than any other corporate function, uh, they have an intrinsic sense of community. Um, so if you think of like, let's say two traditional industry rivals, that may compete each compete against let's, let's imagine three big American banks, three big money center banks. Um, their heads of marketing are out to kill each other, right? They're out to take share. They're out to grow their business at the expense of someone else's. If they launch a new card offer, they're trying to take, you know, trying to hurt their competitor. Um, but the same threats hit all three of those money center banks. And it's not good for anybody if one suffers and because it's only, so there's a level of collaboration and community building among the security community that is really inspiring. And in some sense protects us all from harm in ways that uh, they share ideas, they share leads. They share, there's a great interrelationship between the cyber community and the intelligence community. So there's a whole bunch of ways in which there's a community there. And as a result, we're kind of lucky in that a lot of those people actually see uh, trying to solve this talent problem is their problem. So they're excited to get in the classroom. They're excited to guest lecture, et cetera. So first things first, engage practitioners, get them into your process. Um, second, um, uh, even if, you know, uh, even if they can't teach, I think the best faculty members in a fast moving space like this uh, spend a lot of time talking to practitioners up, you know, having advisory committees that stay on top of your curriculum with you. Um, you know, people who are great educators, I think are also great learners and building networks of great 
uh, CISOs, great information security professionals, et cetera, who will sit down with you and grind through your curriculum and say, that's outdated, put more energy in here. So the, um, uh, so, so even if a, even a fa faculty member completed their PhD in engineering 20 years ago, if they're having that conversation four or five times a year, if they're staying close to alumni in the space, if they're staying close to advisory committees, um, there's a lot of work that can be done to keep their thinking modern and keep the curriculum modern. Third is to have great corporate partners, uh, you know, making sure that, um, uh, you're you're inviting the people who are going to hire your students into the process to say what do you, what do you really need, um, uh, you know exactly what jobs do you need? What does some and I think in cyber is a great example of you know the the idea that educate then work is just moronic, right? Because if all you ever learn is uh, what you know day one. Uh, and you don't get any smarter from the moment you take a job uh, in cyber in particular, but really any career path, you're going to be uh, a liability to your organization, if not society. So as we talk with our corporate partners saying, okay, what, what's the first job you need someone to be able to do? And what do they need to do to do that? And then where are they going from there? What are the three paths from that job to the next job? Is that, you know, are we educating them just for the first job? Are we starting to think about the second job? Do they go to work for you and get their next credential from us while they're working with you? I think in a fast moving space like this, the, the, the idea of um, the, the idea of, you know, um, latticing steps in a career and managing your education against that is really, really important. So I think you can call it uh, you know, the, the artificial membrane between learn and work needs to be at the very least porous, if not eliminated entirely. So those are the, the big three things. Make, make Access practitioners, get them in the classroom. Access thought leaders, get them all over your curriculum with your best faculty and deeply integrate with your corporate partners. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing. One point that I think comes um, along with that is the student and what they're after, right? Career, and then they always have this uh, Show me the money! Uh, piece that 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 uh, is important, right? Because there is a, a perceived um, there there has to be some kind of perception of ROI. What is education today? What is it? Is it direct to job? Is it for the next job? Is it lifelong learning? Is it the student experience and creating better citizens and all of those things? Um, that so there's a range and there's a spectrum and and DeVry itself as an institution has gone through a range and a spectrum of its life, and when you look at where DeVry was, Ad Talum, um, and then the whole Palm Ventures and Cogswell of Education, it, you know, and you come in as president in 2020 and you're taking over an institution that I think has a, a very unique and necessary space in higher education, um, particularly for for the tech community for uh, serving the underserved, giving them a pathway towards a, a degree. Where is DeVry University? And, and you've been there, what, like go, going on a year and change or so, or almost two? Coming up on three, actually. Three. Yep. So where, where, where'd you start? Where are you now? And, and what's the vision? 
Yeah, I think the I'll, I'll key off what you said, which is uh, uh, the the wonderful thing about Devry is that its is its mission is as relevant today as the day Herman Devry and Lee DeForest started it back in the 1920s. If you think about they they were they were technologists, right? They were not. Um, you know, they, they, they weren't divinity experts. If you look at sort of the good and great institutions, these were not people trying to train the next generation of ministers or the next generation of um, uh, thought leaders in the liberal arts. They were technologists who had invented what in their day was the leading edge technology around cinematography and audiology. Um, and they came to a pretty simple um, observation that's every bit as true today, uh, which is the rate limiting factor in the adoption of transformative technologies is the number of people who can work out in the field to put those technologies to work. Basically, they weren't going to sell a lot of new movie projectors unless people knew how to install them and fix them when they broke. And so they put in place a training school that uh, got people ready to go do that work to power the adoption of the technology. Fast forward today, if you sit down with, let's say, any of the big cloud platforms, whether it be AWS or Azure or GCP or whatever, uh, the rate limiting factor on cloud adoption is cloud management skills. Like there's there's no, you know, su supply is infinite, obviously, and demand is nearly infinite. The only thing that prohibits people from going faster and moving stuff to the cloud is the availability of skilled talent to manage it, provision it organize it, manage the migration, manage the internal activities, link it, you know, link link systems across cloud platforms, et cetera. So that very simple insight is still relevant today. And that, you know, there aren't many businesses uh, or, or institutions founded in the 1920s where the founder's vision is spot on for today's economy. Our, ours just happens to be one. So the divide journey is just making sure we don't um uh, we stay true to that mission that that um, if you are uh, tightly focused on the highest demand elements of the economy and the biggest supply demand mismatches in the labor force, uh, you're going to be able to create an awful lot of opportunity for students and an awful lot of growth opportunity for your corporate partners. And as long as we think about it that way and stay very focused on that original mission, uh, there's a lot of good things that happen. On one hand, students get the economic opportunity they're looking for. On the other hand, um, corporate partners get uh, access to talent they just can't find. And they often get access to talent from uh, pools they're eager to access because they're getting into more diverse communities, they're getting into communities where people have different and better life experiences that are immediately uh, relevant to the work environment. So yeah, it, it, it's um, the great thing about DeVry is that ability to go all the way back to the founding moment and recognize how incredibly relevant those insights are, maybe even more relevant than they were when uh, when 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 Herman DeVry put the institution in motion, so that our, our work has been to stay very focused on the most relevant tech education elements for tech-enabled careers. And as as you know, that that isn't just you know we're, we're not only producing um, uh, software engineers. We're producing folks who have engineering technology skills that enable them to be part of an Internet of Things and or distributed computing world. We're producing people who have great fluency in data and technology so they can go to work in the healthcare field, which is uh, 
rapidly digitizing, though we can all acknowledge not rapidly digitizing fast enough because there aren't enough people to go do that work. We're talking about just even putting business people out there who um, uh, are technology fluent. Um, you know, the, it wasn't that long ago that being a great marketer basically meant uh, going and paying the most for a Super Bowl ad. Those days are gone. Marketing is a technology-enabled discipline right now. It's all about using technology to engage and connect with customers. So is sales. So is supply chain management. So every business career now has an element of technology in it. And creating technology-literate business people is a part of what we do. Mm. I love that. Love it a lot, actually. And you speak so well about it. And that's I think that's important as a leader and, and particularly, you know, and, and you've probably seen this, there's different type of institutional types in higher education. People think one way about this type or that type and you have tax statuses and so on. Is all that just noise? I mean, if you can, if you can prove the outcomes, is an education valuable no matter where you get it? Sure. The, the, the altar we worship at at DeVry is what we call ROSI, Return on Student Investment. And uh, every conversation we have, we try to anchor it in managing one of the levers of that equation. So think about think about student investment as the uh, as as the denominator of that equation. Um, and for us, the student investment is not only what do they spend, right? Uh, education's education investment that people make, and it's often one of the most significant investments they make in a lifetime. It, 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 um, even though we work really, really hard at being super affordable, we never lose sight of the fact for a minute that this is a major financial commitment. But for our students also, it's um, their time is super valuable. You know, they they are often have uh, families they're they're looking out for. During the pandemic, they had families they were educating themselves, like so many people. They have jobs, they have responsibilities at work, they have overtime that shows up, they have a colleague who calls in sick and they're doing twice the job. So their time is incredibly valuable. Uh, and then, as, as we now know, if, if, if we think about the investment someone makes, they're ratcheting up their stress. We think about stress as part of that investment. They're taking on a higher level of life stress for a finite period of time to, to get this credential. So anything we can do on those three dimensions, reduce cost, um, reduce time, be very efficient in terms of their time and reduce stress reduces the investment. And then we swing around to the top of the uh, top of the equation and go, go to the numerator. Um, you know, what's the return? Well, you only get a return if you complete your credential, full stop. So we're, we're all about persistence completion first, and that involves a lot of investment and support. Um, second, relevance. Um, you know, how relevant is what you just learned and completed. So we try to stay very focused on active iterative conversations with our industry partners to make sure we're spot on. And then third, kind of activating that, making sure that final mile of a student who wants to take that next step, having access to, whether it be career support to make sure their LinkedIn profile screams what they know, make sure they have a portfolio of work that they can show off to prospective uh, hiring managers, et cetera, make sure they're tuning their story for automated ATSs and stuff like that. So we, we see that, uh, we, we sort of work backwards from that simple equation. If you get rosy right, everything else, um, uh, everything else falls into place. Um, so it, 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 I, I don't, we, we don't try to, we don't pay a lot of attention to, if you think about higher in the US, it's a massive, uh, it's interesting structure and it's a massive middle market. This is America's Mittelstand, if you will. And that, um, because 
you know, there, there's very little M&A, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like you wake up in the morning and, you know, one state university has made a hostile <laughs> acquisition of another. People tend not to exit because there's big safety nets. So there's, uh, uh, unlike every other sector I've been in, the natural sort of uh, agglomeration, conglomeration and exit structure doesn't happen. It's a big middle market. And therefore, I think it's important that every institution has a really narrow set of things. It does really well to earn a right to exist. And, and that, what, what we think we do well is stay very focused on Rosie. It's not what you know. It's what you can prove. I love it. Douglas. Uh, so we, we've used cybersecurity as one of the main examples. Um, is there another perhaps emerging area that you see as a similar similar construct that DeVry is looking to bring on and educate folks with? Or is are you kind of focused on kind of the construct you talked about just being the the programs that you focus on? So kind and he's of asking you for the he's asking for the big secret. I yeah, there's, there's, there's no big secret. I would put um, I'd put the digital health revolution up up on the list of things that are worth paying attention to. Um, and I, um, you know, it was kind of interesting having come from outside education um uh and 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 having built you know significant businesses in other in other sectors um every now and then you bump into the political sector um you know, you'll have it, it, it you know politicians love to cut ribbons they love facilities they love um but one of the misconceptions that i've seen in the body politic has been that um technology equals startup um you know, you talk to uh, you talk you, you know, you know, every every city wants its own version of you know to take it take a geographic attribute in their city or district or whatever and slap silicon in front of it so they want to have silicon butte silicon mesa silicon ditch silicon gully silicon alley silicon this silicon that um and i i don't say this to dismiss the importance of entrepreneurship at, at the heart of American innovation. Um, uh, but um, any new startup today is explicitly not about uh, creating demand for labor. Uh, you wouldn't get funded if you were out in Sand Hill Road saying, what I want to do is employ tens of thousands of people. Um, you're generally encouraged to find ways to automate your around that. You're generally uh, encouraged to find ways that... Um, uh, you can operate from a from a people light perspective. Um, so, from a political standpoint, what you worry about is how are we gonna, how are we going to get people get and create great jobs in a technology economy? And healthcare is one of those places where every city has massive medical centers. There's going to be booming demand. We cannot keep up with supply by definition when we age as a society. And when you drive past a massive hospital complex. Um, people, you know, imagine those buildings are full of great healthcare professionals, which they are, but every one of those massive complexes has uh, really three distinct business models. One is a care, uh, a care portion, which is great uh, nurses, clinicians, doctors, all that stuff working with patients. Then there's basically a huge bank. It's a huge payments infrastructure in there because our payment structure is so complicated. Then there's a huge technology enterprise. And by definition, we're not producing nearly enough clinicians. So the technology stuff has to work. We have to get a lot more leverage from the amazing clinicians we do have. 
Um, and that's just math. Supply is growing much faster. Sorry, demand is growing much, much faster than supply because people like me are old, getting older. Um, there's more of us. And the supply of clinicians cannot possibly keep pace. So we have to look at technology and all the different ways that technology can help enable, uh, help reduce stress on, help support clinicians. So we look at that and say, and and um, and quite literally, it's a challenge that affects every metropolitan area in the United States. So this isn't, it's not going to be a clustering type thing. It's not going to be, there's not going to be three big innovation centers uh, and the rest of the country is going to go uh, go wanting for the economic opportunity. So we look at digital health as a huge, huge uh, societal imperative, and it marries up, you know, deep understanding of the arcane nature of healthcare and the, the very special needs you need, uh, very special capabilities you need to thrive there with an understanding of technology and business process. And so we think that's a huge opportunity, and we think it's vital we get after it. Uh, but it's you know, it's one of five, right? There's there's five, six, seven other huge debt streams that are out there. They're going to power demand for the type of uh, type of talent that DeVry supplies. Well, so no, go ahead, Douglas, go. I was about to say, it's so refreshing. So, I, you know, I've worked in technology a long time and how you win is you cut FTs. You, you literally get your revenue from having less people employed and so many, and that, that's where so many technologies get their margin. And it's just so refreshing to hear this. Like we actually, I'm right here in Denver and I can actually see Guild's office and they do something similar. So it's just like refreshing to hear we're trying to power the workforce opposed to eliminate jobs. So not a question, which is more of a statement. <laughs> so please back to you, Joe. Well, we like to end every episode, by the way, I love everything that you've had to say. I will tell you that it's just very intelligent and thought out and a lot of insights on this episode. We ask the same final two questions of every guest. Number one, what did we not say about DeVry University? Anything that you want to bring up on your mind, kind of plug whatever you want to say about DeVry. And then secondarily to that, what do you see as the future of higher education? Sure. Uh, I, probably the one thing I'd say about DeVry, one, one of the, um, I'm going to give a shout out to our faculty, which is uh, I'm, I'm new to higher ed. Um, uh, and uh, every time you sort of get together with higher ed, you hear, you know, stories about faculty. And I got to be honest with you, the, the, um, I, 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 our faculty have, are from, from our academic leadership down, uh, to, to our newest professors, um, really shape the mission of DeVry and bring it to life along with our student advisors and with the people who work with our students, um, I, I think most organizations, you know, when I talk to people about mission, um, uh, you know, we talk about uh, closing, at DeVry, we talk about closing the opportunity gap by helping students thrive in a world of continuous technological change. Um, people talk about how do you get the, or how do you get the organization to buy into the mission? Uh, I, I found the challenge at DeVry was much more, how do you get the how do you get the mission statement to reflect the exceptional work done by our people every day? Oh, like the, mission, yeah. the mission came from the people, not from the administration. And, and no, no one in no one in our administration would dispute that. I love the fact that the people who work with our students in the classroom and outside the classroom do such exceptional work. Um, uh, the future of higher education. Look, um, uh, cup, you know, uh, the, the correct answer is since I'm new to it is beats me, right? It's the <laughs> only, uh, I, I That's really what I say too. It's good. Yeah. You know, but um, you know, the, the part of higher education I have to worry about is the part that's deeply connected to the economy. Um, 
So um, what, you know, what's going to be true about the economy that we as uh, a success-focused, career-focused educator need to pay attention to? A couple of things we, we pay a lot of attention to. Um, uh, for simplicity's sake, they all start with D, so I'll keep it simple. And that has nothing to do with the variety. Just, you know, the, the future is digital. Uh, by and large, more or less every business process we understand, every human activity is going to get more, not less digital. Uh, and, and educators need to pay attention to that. Uh, second is uh, the future is uh, more data rich. You know, every digital activity creates um, data uh, and the ability to, uh, as you and Douglas both said, First of all, protect it, segregate it, manage it, wrangle it, clean it, um, interpret it is, is going to be uh, common practice across the economy. You will learn by the numbers. I will <laughs> teach you. The Exactly. Um, thir third, it's by, by any measure more diverse. And, and this isn't like a, um, this isn't like a, aspirational statement, let's be more diverse. It's just by any possible <laughs> interpretation, the U.S. labor force is going to be much more diverse um, from a gender perspective, from an identity perspective, from a background perspective, from the ethnicity perspective, from a race perspective, even from an age perspective. This is only the first time in U.S. history we've had five generations of the workforce at the same time. Um, and how you manage, lead, and thrive in that environment is going to be really important. And then um, Again, not to get involved in, um, not to get involved in kind of like, are we going to work three days from the office or four days, whatever. We just have acknowledged that work is going to be more distributed, uh, that it'll be distributed across uh, time zones, be distributed across locations. Will be it's enabled by digitization. There's no way we're going back to the everyone get in the car at 7.30, uh, sit in traffic for 48 minutes to send an email. Um, you know, that, that world has gone away. Work is going to be more, more distributed. So I think, you know, we look at that and say, you know, and, and we need to get very specific about that, but we think those four trends are really going to shape the economy, shape the type of careers people have, shape the opportunity. And it's our job to interpret them, digest them and say, not only what does that mean for an education in general, but what does it mean specifically for someone who wants to join a big public accounting firm? What are they going to need to know? As let's say, as accountancy looks more and more like data science, how do those curriculums come together in interesting ways? Um, so taking those trends and applying them to each and every career track that our students aspire to is our job. Wow. Well, let's see if we agree here with what you said. 100%. Um, Douglas, final word to you before we uh, outro. No, this, this was an absolute pleasure. So thanks for, uh, for diving deep with us and the thoughtful, uh, the thoughtful answers are so appreciated. Great, wonderful. Thanks. So this is a, is one of those classic. Not not only a participant but a consumer. So I, lo I love this, uh, love these conversations, and I'm delighted to be uh, a, a very tiny star in a very bright constellation. Well, we appreciate that. One person that appreciates it is Douglas Carlson. He, of course, is my guest co-host today. Douglas, great to have you back, and of course, Lead Squared, great partner of EdUp. We appreciate you and everything you do to uh, help us change the narrative around higher education. And of course, our guest, your guest today, he's Tom Monaghan. He's president of DeVry University. What a pleasure and honor to have you here, sir. We hope you had a good edit experience today. Thanks so much. All right, guys, ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped.
It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucille, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's higher education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin. 